Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Uh, I'm John Lovewell. I'm the uh, chairman of the Board of Trustees. Uh, and it's my honor to introduce our speaker today. For those of you who may be visiting us for the first time, the Institute is an independent graduate school of national security and in, in international affairs. We offer five Master of Arts degrees in various aspects of statecraft, diplomacy, intelligence, and national security. We also have 18 certificate programs and a newly established professional doctoral program. The curriculum is the most comprehensive in our field is the only graduate program to our knowledge in which students study all of the national security threats facing our nation and then the tools and strategies to deal with the threats. It's hard to believe that's true. We put great emphasis on utilizing all the instruments of power, hard and soft, to increase the probability of winning without war. If you've got an interest in learning more about the Institute, um, we invite you to visit our website or talk to any of our representatives here today. Now it's my pleasure to introduce my friend, Francis Newton Stacy, whom I met last September in Lake Tahoe. Francis Stacy is an economist and director of portfolio strategy with, the, with Optimal Capital. That's in Chicago, right? Uh, Michigan. Michigan, thank you. She is also a frequent commentator on national television, including Fox News, Fox Business, CNBC, CBS, and Yahoo, uh, Yahoo Finance. She is a frequent speaker at national and international events focusing on quantitative finance as well as gatherings of blockchain enthusiasts. She has also been a speaker and consultant to the British Consulate. Francis has blogged for the trading community, helping them to recognize key cycles, and has also taught classes for trading students. She started her broadcasting career appearing weekly on the Jerry V radio show on the Rush Radio, radio Network from 2008 to 2010. There she gained wide appeal and honed her skills for explaining a complex subject matter in simple terms. She then began appearing on the local Fox 5 station in Las Vegas and eventually on national TV. Francis was one of the very few who correctly predicted the October 2007 market crash and successfully traded the downturn. She got out of stocks one month before the crash and simultaneously got into the historic gold market. She also successfully called the market bottom in, 2000, in March of 2009, alerting her radio audience about a sustained upward turn. Frances describes herself as passionate about studying the banking and credit market systems in order to avoid a credit crisis. She also studies the underlying algorithm of the banking system, which she says has an undeniable mathematical structure which, regardless of market swings, is always present and therefore has predictable implications. Well, let's see if we can find out what those implications are, Frances. Well, thank you so much. I'm just going to grab my notebook here so I can stay on task. Well, thank you so much for coming. It is such a pleasure to be in front of you. I really adore the 
um, you know, interests of this institution to try and educate people with historically relevant data in order to prevent conflict and mishaps and things like that. So I do that in the financial setting. Um, and I'll tell you, I'm actually co-hosting all three hours of Maria Bartiromo's show on Fox Business News on Friday. If you watch and you like it, tweet us. If you don't like it, then email me privately and we can have a debate. <laughs> Um, so I've been on Fox Business News for about 10 years, so I started when I was 12. Um, <laughs> oh, now I can't run for public office, I've told a lie. Um, anyway, so that's kind of my passion, is kind of educating business investors and people about it so that you don't get into too much of pumping an upturn or pumping a downturn and looking at things pretty realistically. So I'm going to depress you, but then I'm going to tell you how I'm going to help the system. But I just want to start out with where we are in the great economic cycle. It's very interesting with, a, with an election coming up, and I you know, pride myself in being fairly apolitical, that presidents can succeed or fail based on where we are in the economic cycle. So that has a big impact. So we'll just start out with where we are, so, which is often measured by the stock market. So here we have 1929, which was the Great Depression. We have the low in 1932. We have this high in 1937. And as you can see, this is sort of a W-shaped recovery. And then all the way up, it took till 1951 to come back. So this is the underlying business cycle. This is the shape of what happens. And so in 2008, we had a replication of this sort of credit crisis cycle that is kind of a negative byproduct of central banking. So here we have, we had 2007 is really when the market topped out. We had 2009 was the slow here. And now we are here. We have now doubled the Dow Jones, we've doubled the S&P 500, and we've nearly tripled the NASDAQ since that point. So I will just tell you, in 2007, we were estimated to be 80% debt to GDP. Any guesses where we are now? 125% is the estimate of debt to GDP. Is that public and private? I believe that's public debt. Those are the sovereign numbers. So that's where we are. If you add in private debt, it's much worse than that. Um, so this is the thing, is that underneath all of the economies and underneath all of the politics, we have this scenario. And what happened here was the markets, you know, the Fed, the Federal Reserve was alive and well, and it, you know, allowed easy lending, basically, and so you had something coming, actually they tightened in 1920, they went from 1% interest rate to 6% interest rates, which caused a downturn. And so on the other side of that, they eased, right? and you had the roaring 20s. What happened was debt levels got so high at that point that they decided to tighten, to say, oh, wait a second. So the whole purpose of the central banks is to keep elasticity in the money supply. They just widen the money supply so that more people can use money, and then they bring it back in so that you just don't have endless inflation, so that you should have bought everything yesterday, because everything's gonna go up in price and you know off to the races. If you can imagine, future generations, that would be large discrimination against younger people if you just had everything get more expensive, add into an item. So they actually serve quite a 
quite an important function in that. But anyway, here's where we are. So I want to go through today and discuss issues like populism, globalism versus protectionism, monetary policy moving forward, the China trade deal, where we are, where I think we might be going, some of the sort of unintended risks and calculations based on that. This is where we are. Now, going forward, we have, the, we have two possibilities coming in the next couple of quarters. One possibility is we've seen a little bit of an uptick in, in, in inflation. So that means we're just going to go a little further, right? We have decelerating growth and accelerating inflation, stagflation. So we just go a little further, maybe not quite as steep a curve, right? Because people start calculating in inflation, inflation affects asset prices going forward. The other possibility is, is we have a meaningful correction, which is coming at some point. Even if it doesn't come today, it's coming from some <coughs> point. How do I know this? Because we papered over the financial crisis. What did they do in 1932, all the way up to 1937? Stimulated, both fiscally and monetarily. And then here, it's like, ooh, our spending's too high. Our deficits are too high. We're going to cut spending. They lost that five-year gain in the middle of the Great Depression in one year. So that's kind of a little bit of a precursor to what occurred basically when the Federal Reserve started tightening interest rates, right? They raised interest rates nine times, and at the end of 2008, the market went, ooh, it's too much. The credit markets can't really sustain that. So they immediately reversed course. They announced reversing course. And now you have so many analysts with so many very sophisticated calculators that we can turn these things around very quickly. And we can project statistically new market pricing going forward. So that's where we are at, okay? Whether this thing turns tomorrow or the next day. So I'm gonna talk about it in these political contexts and then I'm gonna tell you that I would like to change this situation before it happens again because if you can imagine how many people got hurt here how many people got hurt here, right? And we have the wealth gap that's grown. Why do these downturns contribute to the wealth divide? It's because the winners win and the losers lose. And then you go forward. So for instance, we have access to a hedge fund that made 3% in 2008. The rest of the market went down 40%, 37.5%. So what happens is you have to then compound those returns. So if you lose 50%, you have to make 100% performance just to get back to even. If you made 3%, you have no getting back to even. So you can just take off from there. So winners compound their winnings and losers compound their losses. And that's how we arrive at the wealth gap, which I think is a big discussion today, right? That's kind of our political impetus for some of the extreme ideologies that are coming. So here we are. So everything I say is with the context of this is where we are and how to move forward in a more, how to prevent the quintessential W, which is the underlying mechanics of our current central banking model. Um, I can tell you I attended the 75th anniversary of Bretton Woods last July. Um, there were a lot of active members of the ECB. Uh, Larry Summers was there, so you guys are familiar with him. Norio Rubini, a lot of really famous economists, uh, a lot of blockchain enthusiasts, and the big discussion was how do we prevent this? You know, Bitcoin is not going to prevent this, but you know, people are coming out with ideas because so many people suffer as this wealth gap widens. So moving forward to talking about, you know, the possibilities of what's occurring with populism. So populism historically exists on both the left and the right. But what happens is politicians 
try to find more and more and more extreme ways of fixing this problem. Most people that I know that are well, you know, they're benevolent people that are involved in politics don't really understand how this underlying curve in central banking kind of affects what presidents do. So they talk about how much presidents spend and they talk about you know, which presidents were winners and losers and failures, but if you take that against the backdrop of this business cycle and smaller iterations of this, these two large cycles, because you have a small business cycle and a large business cycle, then you really get more context to what did their spending do. If you spend a lot right here and you grow the money supply quite rapidly, it's very beneficial. And as a president who's employing fiscal policy and spending a lot right here, it's very beneficial. So you're going to get celebrated for that. Certainly that was true of Remy, basically. If you are spending a lot right here or right here, you risk pushing us over into the next cycle just because of the mechanics. So you could be an extreme winner or an extreme loser depending on what time frame you have this catalyst. And by the way, people ask me every day, how do you know when we're going to have a turn? My simple answer to that very complicated question, and of course I'm a financial advisor and I don't claim to time markets, but my simple answer to this is credit event. Because what you're going to start to see is that the uptick in this is because we can't substantiate the debt. So we see that we have a growing debt situation. That's the public debt. Private debt is also hitting records in many areas. And so we have so much leverage in the system, which makes sense because we've put a lot of additional money in circulation. And at the end of the day, money is borrowed into circulation, so that is debt. So we've added to that. So when does the party stop? When you have defaults. And that just means that the debt has gotten so onerous that people cannot cover the debt service. And in addition to servicing the debt, which has now gotten up to approximately 5% of our GDP on interest alone on the national debt, then you have all of the unfunded liabilities. So you have pensions and healthcare and those sort of things. So you just hit this situation where the reality hits that you're not going to be able to fund those. Now, it's interesting because in populism, you have super far to the left and super far to the right. Super far to the left is socialism. Super far to the right is extreme capitalism. So what happens is that people can see that this is coming. And some people in the campaigns, I'll just call out somebody recently, Elizabeth Warren, she came out with a plan. She couldn't tell anybody in this context how to pay for it. So then, because she couldn't tell anybody in this context, how, and none of these politicians can explain this, I'm just picking on her, but she couldn't tell anybody how to pay for it. So then she increasingly went further and further left, further and further left, further and further left, until it hurt her. She even went on to say that she was going to have a transgender student pick her secretary of edu education. Now, that's a beautiful thing, and I'm not, you know, I'm inclusive of all people, but you can't have somebody who represents 3% of the population make a determination for 100% of the population and have a lot of people that are going to support that, right? So, but I see that as she went further and further left because it's impossible to explain how you're going to pay for things when you have your economic people looking at these numbers. And anyway, the right, they're going to do the same thing, right? To the extent where they can't explain how they're going to pay for this, except to increase fiscal policy, which is deficit spending, right? This is the problem. This is everything in the room. And if you have a candidate on either side who can explain this and explain what they're really going to do about this, they'll win in a landslide. Because this is sort of the elephant in the room. 
that nobody wants to address because people don't understand the mechanics of it. And that's just the simplicity of it, right? So populism, um, in historical eras of populism, you know, you either go super far left or super far right. We have lots of historical examples of socialism and its benefits and failings, but ubiquitously, whichever direction that you go, it's all about the common man. So that's the person that's forgotten in the wealth gap. This is what creates the wealth gap, unintended, of course. Um, it's all about anti-establishment because the common man <coughs> is the loser and the compounding loser of the establishment. So you have to run on that. And then it's ubiquitously sort of protectionist, and I'll go into some of the sort of unintended consequences of you know, where we go from here with trade. And so that's kind of what happens. And what happens to even further exacerbate the wealth gap is right now, debt is really cheap. Interest rates are already very, very low. So you have wealthy people with great credit, they can get all the money they want in the whole world. And then they pay less for everything, right? Because you can buy in bulk and you can buy in cash. And then you have poorer people, if they even have access to credit whatsoever, because they're over leveraged in most cases, then they pay, you know, some of these credit card rates are like 22% interest. So they're buying the same groceries, they're paying 22% more than the wealthier. So why am I talking about this? Because this is what's going to matter in the campaign coming up, right? This is what's going to matter in the election. Because you're going to have to appeal to the person who's paying 22% extra for groceries. So, okay, so that's just sort of, these are the unintended consequences of this cycle. Now, Bitcoiners hate central bankers, blah, blah, blah. Actually, Bretton Woods was really pleasant. But the thing that I found most interesting is that even though cryptocurrency people are, I would say, represent the people who the system has more failed, um, even though they... They just want to change this. Somehow they see the writing on the wall, but they don't understand. You cannot disrupt something unless you really understand it so well that you can improve upon it. And I just found that the Bitcoiners didn't totally understand what the central bank does. And again, what they do is they increase the money supply as a ratio to goods and services, and they decrease the money supply as a ratio to goods and services. The problem is, is you put a dollar in circulation, it's hard to predict where it's gonna go, and how much of a trickle-down effect it's going to have. And we've noticed since the financial crisis, we have not had, until very recently, with the uptick in wages, a meaningful trickle-down effect because it's gone into more increasing asset prices, right? And just lately, we've had an uptick in wages. It's still very far behind when you consider the wealth gap, right? So, okay, so then, so populism and revolutions have kind of a singular thing in, in common if you go back to the fall of Rome, or you go back to the French Revolution, 97% of the wealth ended up in about 3% of the population. And obviously that's completely unsustainable. And so that is mathematically and mechanically the trajectory that we're on. And we're seeing that reflected in our politics and the divisiveness that's occurring between the two extremes. And the pressure that the extremes are putting on the moderates to become more and more and more extreme. Um, so let's go and talk about a little bit about globalism versus protectionism. So protectionism on both sides, interestingly, the right and the left is kind of the moniker of populism. And so what happens is it's America first, it's the common man first, it's anti-establishment. And interestingly enough, you know, when it's in a socialist expression, it's the government owns anything and 
So then the, the government, you know, when it becomes the controller of assets, is more interested in itself than other countries. So that's kind of how the protectionism manifests itself, which is, as you guys know, anti-trade. And on the right side, it's just, you know, this anti-immigration discussion, right? So basically what it is, is you have entire political movements that are attributing the cause of this wealth gap to things that aren't really the cause. And so we now know from history, the fall of Rome, the French Revolution, and countless other examples that that never really works. You cannot solve a problem if you don't really understand what's causing the problem, right? So if you have an influx of people coming into the country and they're putting pressure on wages, that's happening at a particular time in the business cycle. Everything is a backdrop against where you are in this cycle. So that can have different impacts depending on where you are in the business cycle. If you're on the upside of the business cycle, it's great because it, you know, it contributes to growth. Um, so anyway, so you can't go around and blame the wrong people. And there's a lot of resentment obviously happening with that. And I think that one of the narratives is everything is racism. You know, I made a joke about my age at the beginning of the thing. It could be attributed to something to deal with that. And what's really sad about that is I think that there is really, there's legitimate racism, but when you brand everything as something that it isn't, it kind of nullifies what's real, you know? Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. Yes. Right? Yeah, and I, I think that's sad. It's just like if you have genuine victims, you'll always have genuine opportunists, right? Such is life. So, okay, so let's just take a little bit of, um, I just want to talk about globalism, which... Um, some of the stemming of populism is like Brexit and obviously populism in this country on both the left and the right comes from the unintended consequences of globalism. So let me explain how that works and how this goes into the debt model. Because you guys and I, with this knowledge, we can do something meaningful in creating a solution. And I'll talk about what I'm doing a bit later. So I don't want to offend anyone. So we're going to take two countries and I'm not... <laughs> I'm just going to say country A and country B. Let's just say these two countries are on opposite continents. So when they are self-sustainable, you have 50%, we're just going to say industry, and you have 50% agriculture. You just cut it in half. There are many more sectors, obviously, to any of us who follow markets. But let's just say over here you have 50% industry and 50% agriculture. And then you decide, all right, we're going to create trade between these two nations, right? So you start this whole thing of trade. Now, anytime you do this, you look to Adam Smith's efficiency, and there are always cost pressures. Why are there always cost pressures? Because we live in a debt-based monetary system. So you always have compounding interest on that debt, and you have, always have increasing you know, obligation to that debt, and so that turns into cost pressures, right? If you look at an individual balance sheet for a company, Managing their debt goes into the balance sheet calculation of the company's worth, right? So, so these countries start trading. And because they have cost pressure, what ends up happening over time is this becomes 10% industry, and this becomes 90% agricultural, okay? And then this becomes, this is over a long period of time, 90% in, um, industry, and 10% agricultural, right? Makes sense, right? It's efficiency. Unfortunately, if these are thousands of miles away, the people here who used to be industrialists are not moving here. You know, it could be like 
know, the East and the West, right? They're not moving. The people who were agriculturalists are not moving here. So you have a displaced 40% of the population in this simple calculation, simple calculation, obviously, and you have 40% of the population displaced in this country. Where does that 40% go? Are they gonna, are all the industrialists gonna become agriculturalists? No, this is why Mike Bloomberg is in big trouble for making comments about farming, right? Are all of these guys that were in agriculture gonna become industrialists? No, it's not realistic. So you now have 40% of the population, and what happens is they become displaced, and what does the system do with people who are displaced? You put them on welfare. Sorry, you just put them in the system, let's call it. Let's not offend anybody. So you put them in the system, and that's what happens. And then the system has increasing obligation, increasing social programs. So let's put this in the context. So this is the unintended consequence of free trade. Obviously, there are a multitude of benefits. So if you're going to implement a new trade deal, this would be something that you've got to you know, think about. And Brexit is really, it was just people pissed off about trade, right? You had all these Eastern Europeans coming in and building things faster for cheaper, and it was just displacing some of these workers, right? So anyway, this is what occurs. And so if you're going to implement a trade deal, you have to solve this problem. Now, if you're going to solve this problem, and you know that putting somebody in the system adds to debt, then you got to look at, oh, where are we here? You see? It just completely changes the calculation of how you're going to solve this problem. Let's once again differentiate between Republicans and Democrats. Both have very benevolent solutions to problems. So, Republicans and Democrats, they study history, they know that there's going to be a shortage. There's going to be somebody left out, right? The Democratic way of looking at that is, Oh, we have to implement social programs to pay for the people who are left out. That in and of itself is a very benevolent thing. The Republicans say, if we, they used to say, laugh out loud, if we spend too much, we're going to fall off of a fiscal cliff, right? So let's say if we fall off a fiscal cliff, not only do we leave those people behind, but now we, leave, we hurt all of the other people that are doing well, and that changes prosperity, right? They're both right. They both are right. They just have different ways of dealing with this. The problem now that we have is monetary policy is losing its potency because the Fed has put in about as much money as the system can handle. In venture capitalville, Silicon Valley, you've got people you know, just forcing um, money on these private equity investments because they just have so much money. Then they have a fiduciary responsibility to invest the money. The cash is worth nothing, right, because interest rates are so low. So you just keep pumping this money, but it doesn't have a trickle-down effect. So I know in Silicon Valley right now, people are investing in companies that have 10 competitors. Nobody would ever do that in a downturn, right? You wouldn't have 10 Facebooks. Nobody would even support that. How many competitors do you have would be one of the determining factors. So when the cycle rolls over, obviously there will be winners and losers, right? And that's true of assets. In the United States, most of the assets are up. Gold, the dollar, the market. Bonds are all simultaneously up. My theory about that, of course, is that people are coming from where there are negative interest rates and they're flooding capital into the United States. And then we have a Federal Reserve that, you know, is pressured to cut rates even more by investors. And that's going to, you know, at some point that whole thing is going to change. So this is globalism. 
These are the unintended consequences of decades of globalism. So now you have a campaign where you have to fix this. And you have to fix this. And so what happens? Nobody knows what to do about it. So they just call each other names, right? I've come up with a solution, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But anyway, this is where we are in terms of what's happening with you know, Trump and Brexit, the wealth gap, and free trade, etc. So then we talk about what can the, so markets and investors are counting on the Fed to bail them out, right? Um, what's happened is we started to see some credit problems in September. Maybe you guys read about this in the paper. Um, the repo markets, right, which is the overnight lending rates in the banks. The Fed started injecting cash like nobody's business. They tried to take their balance sheet. Their balance sheet is debt to the national, you know, to the treasury, to the national government. They tried to take their balance sheet down. There was not enough cash in the system. Went right back up. We just injected 500 billion into the system. So everyone's counting on the Fed to bail us out. I just really want to simplify what the Fed does. Everything that the Fed does is gas or bricks. I don't care what the instrument's called. I don't care if they call it quantitative easing or they don't call it quantitative easing, right? Which there's a lot of quantitative easing just means adding money into circulation, right? Quantitative tightening means taking money out of circulation. And anyway, they're trying to meet that balance. So a very simple representation of that balance is if you have $5 in circulation and you have five loaves of bread, you can guesstimate that those loaves of bread are going to be a dollar a piece. If you increase the money supply to $10 and you have five loaves of bread, goods and services, then those five loaves of bread are going to be $2 a piece, right? This is the simple modeling that really occurs over there. <laughs> and if you reduce the money supply to two and a half dollars, then you're going to pay 50 cents for those loaves of bread, right? So this is the balance that they're constantly trying to manage. This is what the Bitcoiners don't completely understand about what they do, so they can't totally disrupt them, right? How do you adjust the money supply? Bitcoin has a very finite money supply. So anyway, so this is what's happening. This is where we are. What can the monetary policy do? Well, they lower interest rates. So they make money cheaper because all money, so that increases this, right? The stock market is a liquidity meter because it's everything that people invest in after they've paid their mortgage and they've bought their broccoli and they've, they've paid their health care and their taxes and everything else, right? That's when they then go and invest in the stock market. So they can lower interest rates. But I will tell you, we're running out of ammo. In 2000, when we had the tech bubble burst, we lowered interest rates 5%. Most of you notice we don't have 5%, right? In 2008, we lowered interest rates 5%. So here we are. Where's the Fed funds rate? 1.75? Yeah. So that's all we've got to go. That's it. I mean, they guesstimated between 1.5 and 1.75. That's it. That's all the ammo we have. We cannot use this as an effective tool to correct things, right? Because this incentivizes lending. Where do we go? Negative interest rates. I will tell you, if this is not solved, we are going to go to negative interest rates. There will be no way to recover this if we don't go to negative interest rates. If you would have asked Germany if they would have ever gone to negative interest rates, they would have told you no, and this is exactly how they got there because they have policymakers who are trying to manage this situation, right? Ben Bernanke, when we were down here in 2009, said that the issue with 
the reason you had 1932, 1937, sorry, this is 1938. The reason that you came back down here in that one year time, this is five years, this is one year, sadly, right? This is 10 years almost in the making, this is 1.5 years. So the reason that you came, yeah, I think from October, I think that's one and a half years. Anyway, this is the, you can see that these take a lot longer than these situations. The laws of physics, things fall much easier than, it, it, it takes less force to fall than to push things up, right? So if we're going up, we're pushing a cart of rocks up the hill or something like that. I, I find all these race car analogies, I've really annoyed people with those because my husband's a racing guy. But you just need more fuel to put in the vehicle to keep it going at that speed. And you need more fuel, more fuel, and the steeper the angle, the harder it is to keep it going, right? So a sustainable angle of growth looks something like this. And we have this as an angle of growth right now, okay? So it's just harder and harder to keep that going. So you ask central bankers in uh, meetings that are off the record, but they think of negative interest rates, which of course I've done because I'm not here to win a popularity contest. Um, and they just say, it's a tool. It's a tool because that's it. This is what they've got. This is what they're dealing with. This is the reality that we have to face of where we are in this debt cycle. So negative interest rates are a de facto redistribution of wealth because everything the central bank does either favors creditors, wealthier people, or debtors, not wealthy people. And the central bank, when they make their adjustments, has to figure out who they're going to favor when they have a situation where you have conflicting interests, which is the financial crisis, right? So we're coming up on that situation where we have some conflicting interests. When people aren't going to be able to pay their debts, do you bail out the banks or do you bail out the taxpayers? I'm not saying that's an easy choice. I'm not saying they made the right or the wrong choice. We don't know what would have happened if they bailed out the taxpayers because they didn't do it. So anyway, um, and obviously, Historically, you can read about runs on the banks and bank failures, and that did not lead to any good things. So I really can't say that they did something bad by bailing out the banks. So now we have these negative interest rates. Furthermore, they're pushing more and more money into circulation, which is just lowering forward returns for people because you're borrowing from future earnings, right? When you get the valuations and the earnings per share super, super high, where they're a departure from, the multiples are a departure from their actual revenue, those, the higher that you get, you have to have an uptick in revenue to continuously justify and pay for these things, right? So you're borrowing from the future. When you borrow from the future, you can expect lower returns going forward, right? Particularly when this rolls over. So now you have all these pension funds, all these unfunded liabilities. You have this situation. You're coming off of this situation. You now have this situation. So what do we do about it? Um, so the China trade, and I just want to do a quick time check. What time is it? It's at 20th. 20th. Okay, perfect. So now what do we do about it? So I, this is a balance sheet issue for me. So I can't tell you what it is, which I'm killing John and Zach, who my good friends who've wanted to know for so long, but pretty soon I'll be able to tell you what it is. Basically this is caused by too much debt. One of the biggest things of debt is $4.5 trillion on our balance sheet. So I have actually submitted a proposal to the Bank of England. It's a long story how I got there. Getting invited to the Bank of England is like getting invited to Buckingham Palace. Um, and I've actually submitted a pr proposal to change the calculations in the balance sheet and restructure some of the balance sheet going forward 
to try and avoid this, to try and in a very gentle way bring this back down to a more sustainable angle. That's basically what I'm trying to do. The problem is, is if you write off debt, you, you reduce the money supply because the debt is the money supply, right? And the money supply is very hard to measure because every time somebody uses a credit card, they're increasing the money supply. Every time somebody pays a credit card, they're decreasing the money supply, right? Because debts that are paid back come back out of circulation, debts that are put out go, and that's just you know banking balance sheet one on one. So basically, if you write down the debt, if you just say, okay, Jubilee, year of Jubilee, you know, we're just going to forgive the debts, this is an unsustainable situation, you reduce the money supply. I mean, if you wrote off the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, you would take $4.5 trillion out of circulation. You'd feel that. I can say that because in 2008, you felt the going from $4.5 trillion to $380 billion. Or, sorry, $3.8 trillion. Right? So you went down $380 billion, Sorry. So you went down that much, and we did feel it, right? The stock market sold off 20%. So that's a huge thing when you think about you know, retirement, healthcare, all that good stuff. So I have submitted a plan for this. Um, I have not found anybody that I have discussed the intimate details with that says that it's mathematically not viable. So to be continued, if they accept it or I, I have to take it someplace else, I can keep you guys kind of informed. I'll come back and talk again. Um, but anyway, that's what I'm trying to solve, because I look at that and I go, if we solve that, it's going to solve a lot of the political fracas, because I believe that the political fracas is coming from the fact that nobody is either confronting this or they just don't have an answer. And I'm sorry to have picked on Elizabeth Warren. I actually cannot find a candidate that really, really, really wants to talk about this right now. There's, there's just not a lot of debt discussion. Neil Cavuto, one of my good friends on Fox Business News and Fox News also, he brings it up and he's very unpopular, <laughs> so I can tell you. Um, all right, let's talk about China trade um, in the context of all of this, because I know that's of great interest, particularly with uh, coronavirus, and we were discussing this a little bit before the talk. Coronavirus, um, I've read some studies, Ray Dalio always has very great commentary on things like this, and his commentary tends to be apolitical. Um, I totally recommend him. He runs Bridgewater Associates, which is the largest hedge fund in the world, if you guys don't know who he is. Um, he talked about, he went and studied every pandemic that has occurred, and uh, he said if it's contained in China, then it'll probably mostly just hurt the Chinese markets and not the American markets. If it comes over here, obviously it's going to dampen economic numbers that much more. But right now, nobody knows. There's just no way to calculate it. So, you know, the the American markets aren't discounting coronavirus probably until we have more data. It's a risk. I will tell you, from my perspective, if coronavirus has a lasting impact, it's if it creates a credit moment. Because the credit moment could be the catalyst for this. And it won't be coronavirus, it'll be the fact that we have too much debt in the system. But if it creates a credit moment, it could, you know, investors are all sitting there with lots of capital gains, myself included, ready to pull the trigger. But we don't want to pull the trigger if it's the wrong time to pull the trigger because we have capital gains, right? You can't just go buy, buy that stock back tomorrow, right, with the same price. All right, so the China trade deal, um, obviously we got our phase one deal when I was originally talking about doing this talk, that wasn't yet implemented. So the two big things at that time that we're factoring into the market were the China trade deal and the Fed. Um, the Fed has proven to support Donald Trump whatever he tweets about them. <laughs> uh, putting $500 billion into circulation is many rate cuts, basically has the equivalent. Again, gas and brakes, gas and brakes. Um, so the thing about China going forward 
is, is that they have gone from 2% of the global GDP about 25 years ago to now 20% of the global GDP. That's extraordinary. They're almost as large as we are as far as, you know, part of the global GDP. We did that for them. We outsourced our manufacturing. You know, we did a lot of that for them because we became the consumer for any widget that they wanted to build for cheaper. And again, that's because we care so much about cor corporate profits. And why do we care about corporate profits? Because we have the debt cycle, which is cost pressures, right? So because they're 20% of the GDP, the risk about going a different direction than China, which it looks like that risk is not as real now that we've done a phase one deal. I'm actually glad that we did a phase one deal. Um, is the fact that if it becomes US or China, much of the world, there's a risk, would pick China because their technology, some could argue, is a little more advanced than ours. It's not my area of expertise. But also because they're always cheaper because we can't do with our labor markets what they can do with their labor markets. We just literally cannot compete, right? Can you imagine? People would just be up in arms, right? So the other thing that Dr. Lenchowski, who of course founded IWP, was corrected me and very kindly was I was talking about Chinese GDP one day. He said, <coughs> careful, <laughs> where did you get those numbers, right? We don't know always. And I have a good friend that works from the that works at the IMF whom I met here. We don't always know what numbers are being reported. You know, I'm not accusing anyone of anything, but it's just even different countries within the IMF setting, some report more numbers, some refuse to, you know, just different things, right? So they don't always have the same statistical analysis that we have here in the States. I will tell you, it is very hard. You cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube with regards to China trade and globalism. One example, which I heard about yesterday, was the chief investment officer of CalPERS, which is the state pension fund for California. They run about 300 billion, I'm estimating this. So about $3.1 billion is invested in Chinese companies. And they found that the CIO is part of a Chinese, some Chinese sort of endorsement where the Chinese implement people into positions in America. I'm not going down conspiracy lane whatsoever with this. I'm just saying that what happens is you have a lot of cross-pollinization of capital flows. And you can't just undo that because it's a political achievement, right? And this is why populism often leads to civil war of one kind or another and often leads to a massive paradigm shift, which Ray Dalio writes about extensively. Um, so this also creates a conflict of interest for investors, right? I manage money for my clients, and if China's cheap and the US is expensive and my clients expect returns for their retirement, what am I supposed to do, right? I have a tough choice there, right? Do I go support the Chinese even though I disagree with a lot of stuff that's going on over there? Or do I just say to my investors, no, you're not going to retire that well because I just refuse to buy the Chinese, right? Because Chinese markets right now are pretty cheap. And obviously my clients, I mean, first of all, I have a fiduciary responsibility for my clients. But obviously my clients, you know, it's very difficult. We now have ETFs that buy assets across many, 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 many frontiers, right? So it's just going to be very hard to restrict that capital going into China. So you just, you have to manage this in a more meaningful way. You can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. So that's why I'm taking this angle, where I'm trying to change the trajectory of the bubble making. Um, I'm trying to restructure the balance sheets to try and alleviate the debt. Alleviating the debt would actually help all sides. Rich, poor, um, it, it would help anyone, really. 
um, then you could actually have tax, tax reform that doesn't create massive spending deficits, right? So we're at about a trillion dollars and you have the central bankers coming out publicly saying, when monetary policy breaks, right, we only have 1.75 where we once had 5% to lower interest rates, then we're going to rely on fiscal policy, right? That's more debt. <laughs> so that's the way the system works. I didn't build it. Um, there are so many benefits to the system. Obviously, when the central bankers contemplated the system, you had these debt crises every 100 years or every 70 years, so it wasn't as prevalent as now. We're having you know, a massive rollover in markets almost every 10 years. This one has exceeded the 10-year mark, but that's what's happened. So Ben Bernanke stimulated to try and not create this, but now here we are. I can't say that what he did was wrong because we're in a good place now. It's just about keeping that good place, and with whatever minutes we have left, I would just love to open it up to questions. I have a question. Yeah. Um, do you think tax amnesty can close the gap, the wealth gap? Do I think that tax amnesty can yeah. close the gap? Probably not, if you run the numbers on that. Because the gap has probably, you know, without having specific numbers, there's probably trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars involved in that, so you have to run. So bringing investment back uh, by giving tax amnesty will not help in I mean, it will help in the sense that it will keep the U.S. markets liquid. It will bring more liquidity into the U.S. markets. I don't know that there is enough money there yeah. to keep us from falling off of the proverbial sort of cliff. Yeah. I'd have to really crunch those numbers. But um, the estimates that I've seen when, you know, this was run as a sort of a political ideology with the tax reform, it's just that there isn't quite enough money. I mean, it depends. I mean, if you do it here versus if you do it here, yeah. it's going to have a wildly different impact. But with four and a half trillion on the on the you know on the balance sheet with the Fed, I don't know what they do. You have the estimates of what they would bring back with amnesty? Um, no, I was thinking about um, another country, developing country, not the U.S. Yeah. So to answer that question, it's just where they are in the debt cycle, right? Because what you do is you build up a bubble here, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have to paper over that bubble when this starts when this falls over. You have to build up another bubble. This bubble becomes very big because it adopts a lot of the debt from this bubble. So it just depends on where you are in this W-shaped cycle, which is just the mechanics of the monetary policy. So if you're in a developing world and you're here, or you've just recovered from some massive economic blow-up, right? Mm -hmm. And all your, you know, your bonds are yielding very high, and yeah. nobody wants to invest, and all that kind of stuff then probably it will make a more meaningful impact than if you're here yeah. trying to service that debt. And the other thing is, is why, why do we keep pushing money in and we don't have meaningful inflation? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of theories about that. I don't know that I can say I absolutely know why. But I will say a large amount of new money coming into circulation is very quickly absorbed by debt service. Right? So if it's absorbed by debt service, it just comes right back out again. It doesn't have that trickle-down effect. So, any other questions? What do you think about uh, the Trump administration's uh, uh, thoughts about reducing taxes again? Um, and uh, is there some kind of equation we can come to where we can really say that reducing taxes ultimately res results in uh, revenue increases that cover the tax the debt burden? Yeah, so what's very interesting is, again, reducing taxes just depends on where you are in the cycle. So because we're here, um, reducing taxes is going to exacerbate the debt, which is what he's being criticized. But what he's doing is he's actually falling in line with the central banks because they're saying, like, look, 
when we run out of these bullets, we're going to count on fiscal policy. And, you know, what did Obama do when he was in office right after the bottoming out of 2009? I mean, he spent $10 trillion. He doubled the, because he had to reliquify the economy, right? So it just depends sometimes where presidents end up in these cycles. I mean, he was criticized for doing the late cycle fiscal stimulus by economists because they were worried about this precipice. But the problem is, is Trump didn't create this. And so he has to spend a lot. Any, any politician that campaigns on they're going to cut spending, um, it's, not, it's not mathematically viable or possible. We have to continuously reliquify the economy when we're here where we have all the debt to service. So it's just it's just totally impossible, and that's why going forward, whether you get a Republican or a Democrat in office, you're going to see massive fiscal deficits because that's trying to paper over the cycle once again, once again, once again. But we are just really, you know, when it crashed again in 1938, it took till 1951 to get back. We had World War II here, which basically re, you know, invigorated the manufacturing. So, and that, you know, unintended consequences or what have you. You also tend to get populism after economic slumps, right? Because you have the wealth gap, which brings about the populism, and the wealth gap is more likely to occur post-financial crisis because you had winners and losers, right? So if I was, so I don't, I'm not going to endorse a candidate publicly. Um, I would work for a campaign. The only way I would help a politician is if I worked for their campaign and I had some control as to whether or not they used my knowledge and charisma to sell their ideas as if they were going to you know, actually implement it. Because I wouldn't want to support somebody that wasn't actually going to implement mm -hmm. something that I thought was going to benefit the greater good. And I just think sort of one of the unintended consequences of the populism is that you become so divided that parties won't work together. But if I can really create something that's going to change the trajectory of this based on the old model, where we are in the old model, Federal Reserve, the central banking model has not changed since basically the start of the Bank of England, which it was modeled after. So if I can change something to the model, which as I've said, I've submitted a plan to do that, then I would support the candidate who would implement that. Because from my perspective, you know, just educating a candidate, I guarantee you many of our candidates don't know what I taught you today. And um, just educating them to, hey, here are the real problems. Then you can get a lot further down the road when you talk about implementing things and then you have less risk for unintended consequences. And so I would only do it in a way that I could hold them accountable. Yes, yes. thank you very much. It was very, very stimulating. This is not my field. I teach World War I, then I stop. Uh, <laughs> but I have developed a faith in you, and I loved your message. But I am concerned if your plan to the British you know, Foreign Office does not get accepted. And if it does not get accepted, I'm now in the position to think the world is going to go to hell. It, what do you have as a fallback, or what do you think would happen to the world if it is not accepted? What are you going to do, and what do you think that the world will do? So I'm giving, I'm giving the Bank of England the courtesy, as they've given me the courtesy. I'm going to give them the courtesy of, of, of letting it circulate internally. I mean, one of the things about central banks is if every Tom, Dick, and Harry is talking about it, it's harder for them. to. they try to be very apolitical. They try to maintain their independence. Obviously, we can all see why. Um, so I'm going to give them a chance to kind of circulate it and see if they bite on it or not. If they don't bite on it, it's my idea. It's my intellectual property. So... I am in the process of writing an academic paper, which then I'm going to publish amongst my peers. Um, I've got people that are, you know, helping me with this. I also have my platform 
uh, via Fox and Yahoo Finance and different things like that and also have some connections into Bloomberg. So at that point, I would try to create a public discussion around this that would hold the candidates accountable. Um, the reason I'm not doing that at this present moment in time is because I would really like to work with the central bankers because ultimately this is trying to change what they do. And it becomes very unpopular when you make you politicize that. But at some point you have to have public awareness because if you have no public awareness and no candidate awareness about where we are and what this means. And you know that's why I, I, first of all, tightening interest rates when they did was sort of a saboteur to Trump's ideologies in some ways. But at the same time, they just wanted to get back here. You know, so I can sort of understand both sides of the coin. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to sit in either shoes necessarily without this knowledge because it is a real conflict of interest. And so that's what I plan on doing. So then I will give my academic paper to, you know, the major hosts on Fox News and try to get a discussion around it. I know personally Neil Cavuto is very good about that. Um, so that's what I'm, that's my next plan is to create some public awareness. But I would like the central banks to adopt what I'm saying. It's very sane. It's not anti-central bank. It's not anti-anyone. It's just like, hey, we're all in this boat together. So let's save ourselves. What time are you going to be on Friday? Friday, I'm going to be on Fox Business News. Maria Bartiromo has a three-hour show, so it starts at 6 a.m. and goes till 9 a.m. on the Fox Business Network. I'll be there. I <laughs> so appreciate that. Thank you. I have one question. Yes. So after we had the shifts in the international trade system and we had that bunch of people that were displaced, they are still displaced. Um, we have a very good proposal, I hope, that's uh, coming to the fore, but I just want to know even at a high level, yeah. what practical thing is in it for us, these groups of displaced people? Are we looking at wage rates, education stuff? What's in it that will be good for them? Right, so, okay, so I'm gonna veer off of that and come back to it really quickly, okay? So let's talk about our campaign. If, if we're here and Trump runs on this, he's gonna get reelected. If this tips over before November, could tip over at any moment, right? There could be any catalyst for this, right? Student loans, subprime auto, or some of the, it's, housing is not the sensitive area. These are the corporate, corporate bonds, massively overblown area. This tips over before the election. That could change things quite dramatically, right? Because basically, he's running on his campaign promises. Now, he's had a hard time keeping some of those promises. He's had a lot of obstruction, but when you get populism, it doesn't matter who gets into office. You're going to have obstruction because you've got these two extremes kind of battling each other, right? So this is the first problem to solve because lowering the debt service and lowering the chances of having a W-shaped credit crisis is going to help everyone, right? Even the people that are displaced, right? Because it's going to change the risk in credit markets, right? Um, but then you have to solve this problem first, so that's what I want to do. Then you go back and you start implementing things to solve this problem. Um, I'm going to give you a politician's answer, which is highly general and <laughs> not specific. But I think that where I would look at, I would look at ways to try and implement um, ways to kind of redefine society. Um, particularly in trade, we're now a services. Basically, the United States is mostly services. Um, and try to find displaced individuals and where they can fit into that society that part of society and also implement programs. But again, you implement programs, they cost money, and if you don't solve this, 
it's just not going to get very far, you know, and that's, that's where we are right now. And, you know, I've sort of dedicated my life into saying, wow, if I could stop that, you know, it's worth trying. Yes? Sorry, um, at least one of the campaigns has an advisor that is a proponent of modern monetary theory. Of course, yes. Um, I'd be interested in your understanding of modern monetary policy or monetary theory and sort of your thoughts on that. Yeah, totally. Um, Ray Dalio is also a proponent, and I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of his. My personal opinion is you can do that until you can't. And and he, he also admits that, right? You can do that until you can't because monetary... Turn, turn, turning over debt. That's right. Because, because the problem is, is interest is compounding. Even if you have 0% rates over a long period of time, it doesn't usually stay 0% rates. Or you have other sectors of the economy that have variable rates and you try to get rates up. You know, interest and debt doesn't reduce over time. You know, you have to write it down. It just doesn't. And so modern monetary theory is about papering over. It's about caring about papering over. So I was talking to my CIO uh, before my speech today, and he was like, you know, I was in college when Reagan was kind of doing his thing, right? And he ran a $250 billion deficit, which today looks like chump change, right? Um, and people were just up in arms about this deficit. Oh, this debt, this debt was going to be the end of the world and whatever. And Reagan was on the precipice of one of the greatest growth periods of time. But I looked at deficits where we were in the business cycle. And he was in a recovery period of the business cycle. It's a sub-cycle of this because obviously I'm comparing this to the Great Depression. But he was in a re recovery phase. So the people that thought that was the end of the world were wrong, basically, right? And so that ideology is being applied to... Uh, Trump's fiscal policy, and he has a lot of support from the central bankers who are saying, when we run out of bullets in the monetary realm, we're going to have to do fiscal policy. And that's what modern monetary theory is, basically, is where are you going to paper over this? But because it is, in essence, at the end of the day, a papering over, and we've already papered over this, which is why we're here at 125% you know, debt to GDP, that's an estimate. Um, because we've already papered it over, you can do that until you can't, is my ultimate opinion. So for me, when I look at solving the problem, I don't look at modern monetary theory. I'm like, I don't want to pour more cancer on the existing cancer. I look at how can you alleviate debt service without reducing the money supply. And if you talk to most classical economists, they will tell you that is in fact impossible. And I cannot tell you, I'm so sorry, that's rude of me to do, but I have definitely you know, found a way that nobody has been able to prove me wrong yet. So. And your reason for doing that again, Francis, is to to try to work with the central bankers first, get them on the team yeah. before you make it public. Is that, is that what you're saying? That's true, yeah. And the reason is, is it's up to them to implement this. And yeah. so you can pressure them with politics, but I just think it's, I think time is of the essence. You know, I think that this could happen tomorrow or two years from now or what have you. Um, but just personally, you know, the reason I became an economist is because, I don't know, somebody dropped me on my head and I like reading old books about <laughs> markets, but, um, no, I've always had a passion for it, but the thing about it that I find most fascinating, it affects everyone. Yes. You know, whether you had a good childhood or a bad childhood or, you know, all these things, right? So, uh, yeah, my, so my idea is just to bypass the political scene just because there's such gridlock in Washington and here <laughs> and uh, try and get the central banks to, you know, implement it. And, you know, I, I listened to all the ideas floated at Davos and... You know, I basically wrote the bank and I said I didn't hear any idea like mine. So, you know, sometimes I believe that you're put on the planet to do certain things, and I've 
kind of believe this about myself with economics for a long time. So, you know, I'll try, and if I crash and burn, it's okay. My husband is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> and he's very, you know, he's a successful, wonderful guy. So, all right, any more questions? Thank you very much. Thank you. Great. Thank you, guys. Thank you.